All right. Hey again, good morning. We are glad that you guys are here. And uh, especially if this is your first time, a special welcome to all of our visitors. We hope it's not your last time. So I always like to tell people, give it four weeks. Um, that way you're not uh, totally offended the first time that you wouldn't give it a shot. Four weeks and maybe if, after four weeks, then hey, we'll see what goes on. Uh, it's interesting, uh, this past week, um, I took my family camping. Uh, last Christmas, we got a tent for Christmas. Because last year, at the outdoor service, we decided we found a homeless uh, couple and they didn't have a place to live. And so we gave them our, we didn't give them our tent, we loaned them our tent, which I always say if you're loaning, you're giving. <laughs> and so it was a gift. And uh, so we didn't have a tent and we got one for Christmas. And I'm like, yes, this is going to be the summer of camping. This past week was the first time we've gone camping this whole year. But it kind of hit that little, you know, that whatever spark where you're like, okay, man, we should do this more often. This would be a lot of fun. And so, uh, but I tell you what, after three days in the mountains and no shower, ooh, that's me. All right. Have you guys been in that spot? And we all have, especially parents. Maybe you're a teacher. But there's that moment where you ask the children to do something that none of the children want to do, and they all say in unison, or as quickly as they can, not it. You guys remember hearing that? I do when I was a kid, and when somebody would say, hey, the teacher, hey, would you guys be willing? Not it, not it, not it. Maybe it's your house when you ask anybody want to pray. (laughs) You're like, not it, and it's your husband's the first one to go, not it. Um, It's interesting that introverts, they love the not it phrase. They do. Extroverts, not so much. In fact, it's interesting because the irony of it is a lot of people, they want to be it, which is why when uh, magicians and things like that, when they ask for volunteers and all the little kids are like, ooh, me, and they raise their hand as high as they possibly can, they want to be it. They want to be the center of attention. They want the eyes to be on them. And so... We see a lot of that. The look at me, look at us. I wonder if maybe in the church that's the mentality that a lot of us have or a lot of churches have. That it's more about us than it is about him. This summer, we started a brand new series called The Life of Christ, where we're chronologically just going through the life of Jesus, and it will probably go over a year. Uh, And I'm super excited about it. We're breaking it up a little bit, but just going through this life of Jesus. And in the very first two weeks, we told you about two divine births. Uh, Now, everybody usually, most everybody, knows about Mary and Joseph and God coming down Uh, through his angel and saying, hey, you're going to give birth to a son. He will be Emmanuel. He will be God with us. But there was another divine birth. And if you were here, you remember that. It was Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were very old. Um, They were, uh, how's the way we'd say it? They were outside of their childbearing years. And Zechariah was one of the priests. And so while one day when he was in the temple doing his priestly duties, the angel of the Lord came and said, hey, guess what? Look, old man, you are going to become a father. 
your wife is going to give birth to a son, and you're going to name him John. And if you remember this, or maybe you don't, but his response was, um, <laughs> do you see how old I am? I mean, I'm old and wrinkly. And my wife, she's in the same boat. He probably said that a little quieter. We are not that couple. And the angel said, tell you what, you are that couple, uh, but because you didn't believe, you're going to remain silent until everything that I've said comes to fruition. And so that was the case. Zechariah basically lost his ability to talk his ability to communicate verbally. And so I'm just like picturing it in my head, him going home to his wife, you know, doing the charades. It's like... And her going something. I don't know what she would gesture back, but you're absolutely crazy. You're insane. But it absolutely happened. It happened exactly as the angel said. Even though you're old, even though you are outside of your childbearing years, you don't understand how God works. God works in amazing, mysterious ways. And so that's what happens. They give birth to a son, and they do name him John. We would know him as John the Baptist. And he would be raised outside in the desert, out in the wilderness. And John grows up, and we can read about his life in, Af in four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what kicks off the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four record John the Baptist. So he's a fairly important guy. And we're going to read through the book of Mark starting out. We're actually going to hit in every Gospel. We're going to start in Mark. Mark is John Mark, and he was probably most likely in Rome at the time and a lot of the guys who had firsthand witnessed Jesus were starting to die off. And so a lot of people, Christians, are like, dude, you were there. You saw some of this stuff firsthand. You need to write this down. You need to write this stuff down. And so he writes his book called Mark. <clears throat> and his writing style is amazing. It packs a punch real quick. And so that's why I like it as far as when we're talking about John the Baptist, because John the Baptist kind of fits the style of writing. So right out of the gate, here we go. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now here's the interesting thing. Hold the slide up there, Mark, for a second. Right out of the gate, Mark is letting you know, in the beginning, let me tell you what this book is going to be about. It is going to be about the good news. It is going to be about the gospel. It is going to be about Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. It means anointed one. And he's basically saying, this is what it's going to be about. This is not about me, Mark. This is not about John the Baptist. This is about Jesus. And so often in our lives, I think in, in the, even in the life of church, we make it about everything but Jesus. And if you want to know what Revive wants to be all about, we want to be all about Jesus. And so Mark gets rid of any doubt. I wonder what this book will be about. Let me, let me just tell you. He says it's going to be about him. And then he introduces us to John the Baptist, saying this guy is going to live his life with the exact same mentality. His life is going to be all about 
pointing people to Jesus. Verse 2, it says, As it is written in the Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John, this is fascinating, in verse 6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts, grasshoppers, with wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes a more powerful, one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, in both books of Matthew and Mark, they both give us a depiction of kind of what he looks like. They give us a portrait of John the Baptist, and the first thing that you'll notice is he wore clothing made of camel hair. Now, anybody ever touched a camel? Okay, I have, I have eaten camel, and I have touched a camel, and I don't plan to do either one anytime soon or ever again. Camel hair is rather rough. It is itchy. It is not comfortable. It is not warm and fuzzy. If you went to men's warehouse and you're trying on a suit and you kind of like it, but the guy's like, hey, dude, I have this in camel hair. You'd be like, absolutely not. You would try it on once and tell that guy he has no position working there because it is not comfortable. It's why our kids don't have camel hair made stuffed animals. It is rough. His, what also was rough was his diet. He's eating locusts. And I would imagine if you're going to eat locusts, there is not enough honey on the planet to make up for the way that they would taste. But maybe they're all right. I haven't eaten any. But this wasn't uncommon. It was actually a poor man's meal. Uh, in Jesus' day, in first century, it would have been a poor man's meal. A lot of people who didn't have a lot of money would eat locusts, and they would absolutely, uh, they would season it with milk or honey. And so that was kind of the thing, high in protein. Here's the thing that I pick up on on this. It's very clear and very obvious that John the Baptist is not, a, not as concerned with how he looks and what he eats. He wears something to cover himself up and he eats the things he needs to eat to give him the energy to do what he needs to do. But it is not about how he appears. It is all about Jesus. And we find that throughout his life. I think it would be like if we saw somebody stroll out of the mountains, uh, especially if you were on the east in East Tennessee or North Carolina and somebody strolls out of the hills. That is a mountain man. That is just a different kind of person. And they carry themselves in a different kind of way. Maybe it reminds you of the guy at school or in the workplace who is just slightly crazy. You know that person who's just slightly crazy and you're just wondering, hmm, I wonder what they're going to do next. Or I wonder what they're going to say next. This 
is John the Baptist. And it kind of reminds me of my late grandmother. And I love my late grandmother. But she would always say what was on her mind. And it always made me nervous. So I would keep my distance a little bit. But she just had this way about her. She had no filter. She didn't soften up any message that she had. She said it like it was. And this is what John the Baptist does. He didn't hold back. He gave the message that God had laid on his heart. And so one thing he does that we would never suggest that, <laughs> that you do, but he's the guy standing on the street corner yelling at people, <laughs> telling them to turn of their ways. You need to change your ways. You need to repent. You need to give your life to him. Basically a turn or burn in hell mentality. He doesn't hold back any punches. Notice what he says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, starting in verse 7. He says, when the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you broad of snakes, you vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Now, we learn in the book of Matthew, he's talking to the Pharisee and the scribes. He says, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we're descendants of Abraham. He says, that means nothing for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Wow. This is not seeker-sensitive. <laughs> You know, people are like, man, where's the opening story that gets people, you know, going, that loosens people up? It's not in this message. He's like, you snakes. From the very beginning of time to today, when somebody is called a snake, it is never referred to in a good way. Dude, you snake. No, it's always something negative. It's something bad. You bunch of snakes slithering away from Jerusalem. And here's the deal. He says, you think you're good because of your title and your heritage. You think you're good because you're Jewish. You think you're good because you're a descendant of Abraham. Today, it would be said like this. You think you're good because you call yourself a Christian. He says, yeah, guess what? God can turn these little rocks into Christians. God can turn these little rocks into sons of Abraham. We would say a title alone will not save you. It's not about what you claim yourself to be. It's like, how many of you are Christians? Okay, you're good. He's like, no, absolutely not. There needs to be some action involved. There needs to be some commitment that goes beyond just saying that you are a Christian. Your claim has to be supported by your heart and your life has to reflect it. Otherwise, we would say, have, is there really any change? Are you the same person now as you were before? And so the, a lot of the people are like, yeah, okay, what should we do? And that's what they ask in Luke chapter 3. verse. They said, what should we do? 
And John replies, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked, teacher, what should we do? And he replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. And some Roman soldiers are like, they were paying attention. They're like, hey, what should we do? And John replies, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Be content. Show integrity. Do things honorably. Here's what John is saying to everybody. You need to change the way that you're living your life. Be generous and share with those in need. You need to stop being selfish. If you want to live your life that honors God, be generous with what you have. Everyone can do it. Everyone should do it. And yet we find that very few do. Very few will be willing to do it. But for everyone, it means share with those in need. For tax collectors, it was simple. Stop doing what you're doing. The government is asking this much and you're charging them this much and you're reaping all the benefits. Jewish people couldn't stand tax collectors because they saw them as traitors. They're Jews that are just collecting all their money and giving it to Rome. And so they couldn't stand them. But John is very clear. You need to start collecting what is due. And that's important. And for the Roman soldiers... Well, gee, what should we do? Don't take advantage of people. Don't accuse people falsely and be content with what you have. Don't use your power or your position to do the things that don't honor God. Isn't it funny that what John the Baptist is asking them to do is what we parents have been doing with our children from the very get-go? Share. Share. Share your stuff. Share it with your sister. Share with your sister's friend. Share. I, it's amazing to me that our children, back when they were toddlers, wouldn't play with something for about eight months. But when we had somebody over and their kids started playing with their toy that they haven't touched in eight months, what does our kid do? Mine! I want to play with that. Like, you haven't touched it. Give it to them. In fact, I'm going to give it to them permanently. Share. Share with your friends. Share with your sister. It's what we tell them. Sharing and being honest are the two things that John really hits on and the two things that we work hard with our kids because it's what they struggle with the most. And I feel like God is tapping some of us adults on the shoulder saying, you struggle with that too. You struggle with honesty. You struggle with being okay with what you're being paid. You struggle with sharing. And he's saying, have a heart like mine. Because if you don't, then you're going in the wrong direction. And this is what repentance is. It means you're going in the wrong direction. So if I'm heading this way, and this is just the simplest way, and we've heard this since we were little, is if we're going this way, and this way is not the way that leads to God, 
then what he wants us to do is completely turn around and go this way, a way that leads towards Jesus, so that everything that I do, everything that I say, everything that I act upon is a little bit more geared to what Jesus would want. But if I just face this way and I'm like, man, I really feel bad for what I did, but I don't truly turn around and change my behavior, then I haven't changed anything. And it doesn't mean that we're asking for perfection. Jesus, God is never interested in your perfection. He's interested in your direction. It's about your direction, not your perfection. And John is calling out to them saying, man, you need to repent. You need to turn around. You need to be baptized. You need to turn from your evil ways. And this is going to be the constant theme of his ministry. And this shows when we do this that we truly wish to follow after Jesus. When I say everything in my life, I want it to be geared towards Jesus. Now I'm showing that I really want to be a follower. Sarah and I have had a constant battle with one of our children. I'm not going to mention which one, but she continues to say, I'm sorry. She'll do the same thing over and over and over again. And when she does, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So a few weeks ago, it's like, I don't want to hear I'm sorry. I want to see a change. I want to see you do things different. And so I got down and I said, hey, look, I love you. But you need to do better. And I feel like Jesus is getting down on his knee and saying, hey, look, I love you. But if you keep saying sorry, but there's no change in behavior, are you really sorry? Have you really turned of your ways? And I think for all of us, it kind of comes down to that place. We had our life before Christ. The BC life. And some of us had some pretty jacked up BC life. But then we have an encounter with Jesus. And because of that encounter, it should result in life change. And so what does your AD life look like? Do people say, man, you seem different. Your life seems different. The way that you are, the way you treat people, it just seems different. Continuing on in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew 3 verse 11 is starting to hit on one of my absolute favorite things about John the Baptist. He says this, he says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not worthy even to be his slave or carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Here's what I love about John. He knows what a lot of people are thinking. See, a lot of people are flocking to him. They want to hear this message from the crazy guy down by the river. But they're starting to think and they're starting to wonder, could this be the guy that they were prophesying about? Could this be the one? I mean, he appears different than what we had in mind, but could this be the Messiah? And John knows what they're thinking. And so he hits it off at the pass, and he's the first one to jump up and say, hey, not it. Not me. 
It is not me. I am not the guy. I am just a guy trying to point everyone to the one who is. In fact, <laughs> he says, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I'm not even one to attend to his sandals. In fact, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four mention Jesus' sandals. He is not worthy to tie, to untie, to carry Jesus' sandals. And when I think about that, I know what my feet are like because I wear sandals every single day. But move back to first century, could you imagine what feet and sandals are like? In 2006, I went over to Nairobi, Kenya, and uh, we would work and do ministry in the slums. And I had a different idea of what the slums were going to be like because the one thing I learned really quickly was there are no toilets, but there are several hundred thousand people. And so my curiosity peaked, and I asked the person who was leading us, I said, what do they do? And they said, what they do is they just get these plastic bags, and they go in it, and then they throw it out into the dirt street, the dirt path. And I was like, oh. And of course, I was wearing my rainbow sandals at the time, and I was like, oh. A few days later, we're, uh, it was about a quarter of a mile to a half mile walk from where we were dropped off to where we were doing ministry. Basically, they would say, hey, Jeff, you're going to go into the middle of the slum and you're going to preach. We're going to give you an interpreter, but you're just going to preach. And I was like, who's going to be there? And they said, don't worry, people will start showing up. And my interpreter preached the best sermon I've ever given. I mean, he was amazing. He was, I have no idea how he was interpreting because I don't speak Swahili. But it was fascinating to me. But a couple days after that, it was raining all morning. And then we're walking out towards where we're going to do ministry. And I'm in my sandals. And all of a sudden, my, concentrate, my concentration slips. And my foot slides right out of my sandal. Right into the gook. And I said, oh, crap. And my friend, he goes, exactly. And I was like, oh, oh. And if you know me, I'm a little bit of a germaphobe, which I have to get over in those moments. It was so gross. And yet, I started to think, that was 2006. I can't imagine that a couple thousand years earlier, the streets were more sanitary. So understand that if that was too highly of a position for John the Baptist, that's saying a lot. That he is not worthy to attend his sandals, to lace them up, to carry them. And so John the Baptist basically says, hey, I am not the guy. I'm not worthy. But he is the guy. He is. And he says this in John chapter 1, verse 29. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me 
Because he was before me, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. There he is. Look, behold, the Lamb of God. That's the guy that takes away the sins of the world. That's the one you should be following, not me. I'm not it. And I start to think, okay, why aren't we doing the same thing? Why aren't we saying, look, there's a man who can take away your sins. He is the one. No other person, not me, not a priest, not a pastor, not the disciples, not John the Baptist, only Jesus can take away your sins. He is the good news, not me. He is the good news, not revive. It's the good news, it's the gospel, it is Jesus. And John does everything that he can to pave the way, to point the way, to tell people about him. And this is the best example I could think of of what the church should be like and what Christians should be like. Not screaming at people, not shouting at them from the street corners, it worked for John, but to simply point people and to share with them what he has to offer. And we're not concerned with our own kingdom, that we're only concerned with God's kingdom. And see, it's interesting that John's ministry was very short-lived. It did not last very long at all. In fact, his life would be very short-lived. It wouldn't be long after this that he would depart from his head. They would have him executed. But he lives out his life doing what we should do. And it wasn't just something that he proclaimed or said. He actually supports it with what he does. Let's continue in John. This is our last passage. In verse 35, it says, The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. And as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. So he says it again. In case you missed yesterday's announcement, Today, I'm going to say it again. Behold, the Lamb of God. And I love what happens because when he says this, John's two disciples, they heard him say this, and they immediately start following Jesus. So John's walking with his guys. He's like, hey, behold, the Lamb of God, there he is. And these guys just, whoop. And they start following after Jesus. And what I love about John is he lets them go. It was, wait, 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 wait. What about me? It was, no. There they go. So John, who's the one that Jesus said is the greatest up until this point? He's the guy who basically had the Holy Spirit in him before he was even born. He's the one who is divinely conceived. He's the one that prophets talked about, the one in the wilderness, shouting it. What an amazing resume John the Baptist has. And yet it wasn't about his kingdom. So when these two guys leave, he's like, 
if that's better for the kingdom, great. And that's what John does. He lets them go. And he has, it's, not, it's, not, it's not me. I'm not it. And I think to myself, the kingdom would do so much better if we all had a not it mentality. And it starts with me. Because I struggle with this. My pride gets in my way. My ego gets in my way. But I don't want it to be about me. I so badly want to be the one. And I so badly want for this church to be a church that says, hey, we're just going to declare with everything that there is someone far greater than us. And he is the one that you should be following. And he is the one that Revive should be pointing people to. I want that. In a day and age where I think we have a lot of churches and a lot of pastors, they're saying, hey, look at what we have done. Look at what we have. We should look at what he has done. It should be about, look at what he can do. That is what it should be all about. That's why we should be pointing people to him. And so I pray that you guys will join me in that. That we can declare to Loveland and Berthood and Johnstown, Fort Collins and the state of Colorado and that it would spread, that we would be like, you know what? Man, God loves you so much. Let us show you the way by pointing you to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for sending your son. And I love the way that Mark starts out his gospel. He's like, in the beginning is the gospel. It's the good news. And I think so much we get that message confused. We miss that. And so help us to be 100% focused on your kingdom, not our own. Your will, not our own. Your way, not our own. So lead us in that. I pray it for me. I pray that I will have a change of heart. That my AD attitude and my AD way of life will reflect you and show people to you. So help us to respond at this time. We love you in this way, asking your name. Amen.